morning, afternoon, wherever you are, whatever time you're listening to this. My name is Tracy Wilson-Rossman. Um, I'm the founder of Journal My Health, um, and I'm here with my partner, um, Shelley Pavone from uh, Enlightened, and um, we're here for another episode of The Founding Women. And we've been pretty fortunate to find some really great guests through you know, different sources, but uh, this one in particular is through the Chief Network, uh, so a little shout out to them. Um, and that's how I met our next guest, who, when I put out a, a call, had written me back, um, saw your post about seeking women to interview on funding journeys, and she has bootstrapped, she bootstrapped her company. And I thought that that was a really, well, Shelly and I both thought that was an interesting conversation to have, that funding isn't always about going out and raising money from friends, family, angels, strangers. There's other ways of of um, making sure that you can fund your business. So um, I'd like to welcome, I'm going to give a little bio on, on Sharon uh, Gillenwater um, before we say hello to her. So Sharon is the co-founder and former CEO of Boardroom Insiders, which was a SaaS business intelligence platform designed for B2B sellers and marketers. She led and grew Boardroom Insiders for more than a decade when it was sold uh, last year, a year ago, 2022, um, in an acquisition by Euro Money. Um, at Boardroom Insider, Sharon designed and oversaw the development of two digital products, Boardroom Insider Signature and BI Pro. For more than two decades, Sharon has been a thought leader and consultant to the global tech industry on topics of large account ABM and CXO engagement strategy. And there's a quote that is in her bio that I just absolutely love um, from one of her clients. Sharon is a type of secret weapon that everyone wished they had in their arsenal. Mic drop right there. So um, Sharon, thanks for, for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I love talking about this stuff. Uh, yes, Sharon, really, really happy to have you joining us today. I'm really excited for this conversation because I think your path has been a little bit different than a lot of the guests that we've had so far. Um, as Tracy mentioned, you founded a company called Boardroom Insiders, and that was in 2008. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about Boardroom Insiders and how did that idea really come into existence and what was the, the problem or the kind of the hole in the market that you saw and the problem that you were trying to solve with that? Well, I had been consulting for large marketing organizations in some of the biggest tech companies in the world. We're talking about like Cisco and Oracle and um, VMware, Google. And I started to see um, a desire on the part of the marketers to reach C-level executives. And when I say that, I mean, you know, CEOs, CFOs, and in particular, chief information officers at the time. And the reason for this was because technology was becoming much more foundational to every business. And it wasn't just about buying, um, you know, servers and hardware. It became, uh, you know, as, as software started to move to the cloud, buying um, technology meant that you were going to be impacting the entire organization. And these 
these deals were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So the approval and the influence of these deals was moving up the executive chain. Um, but tech company sales and marketing teams didn't really know how to engage C-level decision makers. It's a much different conversation. It's not about product features. It's about business impact. So I kept getting requests from my clients. You know, how do we reach the CIOs? What do CIOs care about? And I, the real game changer for me came when Scott McNeely, who was then CEO of Sun, his team came to me and said, Scott has 200 must-win accounts where he wants to develop relationships with the CIOs at those accounts. He needs profiles of these 200 CIOs. And so um, we went through a process of figuring out what that meant. Uh, he had a very specific request for what he wanted in these profiles. And so I developed the template for him and it went from there. I mean, I quickly realized, wow, I can get this kind of information in the database and resell these. I have a lot of interested customers. So I tested the profile template and the, the concept over a number of years with my consulting clients. And so for a very long time, probably longer than was healthy, I had one foot in the consulting world while I was simultaneously building the database and testing the notion of a, you know, a, a, data, a digital product where one could subscribe and access these kinds of profiles. Really interesting, right? You obviously had a very clear path um, to, to create something that you know was going to provide instant value. Um, when you were first getting kind of off the ground, I mean, did you did you have kind of personal funding that you put in? Like, how did you, because, uh, you know, you mentioned kind of building a product, right? And that can be time consuming and expensive. So how how did you start that from a financial perspective? Well, my consulting business was going gangbusters. I was making more money than I had ever made. And, um, you know, even to the point where I started bringing on other consultants behind the scenes to help me do the work. So I had quite a, a nice machine going there. And here's what I would not do, which is what I did. So I had two companies. I had Boardroom Insiders, which I had set up as a proper company legally. And then I had San Francisco Group, which I was running as my consulting business. And it was very fluid. I would you know, pay for bills for Boardroom Insiders stuff out of my San Francisco group account. I didn't keep track of anything. It's almost like I didn't believe that Boardroom Insiders was ever going to become a thing, right? I just, and I was busy, right? I had two little kids. It was chaos. Um, so I did use some of my um, income from, from San Francisco group to pay for the early things that I need for Boardroom Insiders. And I even developed like a flat file database. So the, the, the profiles were basically in PDFs online where people could find them. But that meant that when I updated them, I'd have to re-upload a new PDF. My husband's a graphic designer, so that helped. He would help me with it, um, with the updates. But eventually uh, I realized I need a proper database and I need this text kind of fielded in different ways and tagged in different ways so that I can do things like relationship mapping between executives and all kinds of interesting things. So at one point I needed money to develop a database. And uh, I was talking about this to um, a personal friend who had just had a major exit and you know success for himself. And he said, well, build it. I'll give you the money. 
So he actually did give me a check, um, you know, since some small angel funding um, for so I could build the database. So I did have this little bit of seed money. And after I built the database, I mean, it was a very, very long um, trajectory of even getting to a million in revenue because we were really ahead of the market. So even though some of my big customers like Cisco and Sun were really um, interested in the idea of C-suite selling, smaller tech companies weren't quite there yet. So I, uh, when I tell my story, I always emphasize we were about five years ahead of the market. Nobody knew what we were talking about, you know, when we were talking about C-suite selling, except for a handful of my existing consulting clients. So it was kind of a slog. Um, but, you know, I took that initial funding, built the database, really um, wore a lot of hats so I could preserve that funding for as long as possible, and then self-funded through the revenue that came in through the company and, you know, really kept it separate from then on out in terms of what was coming into San Francisco group versus what was coming into boardroom insiders. Wow. That, I mean, that's, that's really impressive, um, on how you were able to sort of combine that, uh, to get the, the, the cash that you needed to get started. Um, I'm really interested in hearing the story of, you know, what you would recommend for somebody, uh, around, do you start with consulting and then create the products or, you know, go the route that, that you did? Well, people will always ask me, including, you know, my kids, well, I want to start something. What should I do? And I said, well, from my perspective, um, there are two kinds of entrepreneurs. There are kind of, you know, the, the people who went to Harvard and Stanford and have this pedigree and looking, you know, Many, many ideas will come their way through their network, through, uh, you know, if they're hooked up with VCs. Um, and then the other kind is are people like me. And I've met a lot of women like me through Chief who were working in some kind of field and saw a gap mm-hmm. that was really bothering them. And they couldn't understand why no one's created a solution for whatever it is. And so then they end up creating it themselves. And so that's what I did. And on top of it, I didn't have the money to really go all out and build, you know, a full-on product. So it actually worked out really well because um, while I was consulting, I developed all these different frameworks. And when I say frameworks, it's like a way of presenting information, usually in a, a slide, like a Google slide or a PowerPoint slide. Mm-hmm. So for example, my customers would say, well, you know, we've got 30 accounts that we're really focused on this year. And we would like to know across those 30 accounts, what's really bubbling to the surface for the CIOs? What are the most common business initiatives for CIOs across these 30 accounts? So that's where my profiles came in and I would profile the 30 CIOs. And then I would look across and I would uh, you know, create a chart or a, a graph that showed, okay, here's the, you know, personalization or AI, you know, these are the top initiatives across these 30. And so over the years, I had developed ways of presenting this information to my customers that they really, really liked graphs, charts, all kinds of things. So the beauty of it is I had, you know, five or six clients who had already accepted and recognized this way of consuming information. Mm -hmm. So when I built the software, I just made it look exactly like that. And I just had to figure out on the back end how to pull that information in. 
um, because for years I had done it manually because I didn't have the money to build a software. Um, but I knew exactly what I wanted it to look like. So I sketched it all out in 2016. And this is, you know, this is BI Pro. I'm talking about, you know, the, the database um, I built over the years, and that wasn't as expensive or as difficult to do. But, um, you know, when I came up with the idea for the software, I sketched it all out in 2016. We didn't have the money to do it until 2019. So we put the my big post-it notes in the closet in the office and once we had the money, pulled it out and built it, and it was relatively easy. Um, we were selling it even before we had named it because our customers already knew what it did and what it was for. And this is really critical. They had been paying way more than they were going to pay um, when it was custom work than when we converted it to software. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, they were paying anywhere from 50 to $100,000 for one project. And I'm talking about the project where they're looking across, you know, 50 accounts or 100 accounts, and we're surfacing what's common across those accounts and those executives. So if you think about it, they were paying, you know, 50 to 100K, depending on how many accounts there were, for one project that, by the way, would start to go out of date the minute it was delivered because executives would start moving around, companies would start merging. Um, So... The pitch, once we had the software done, was imagine if you could create this for all different types of account groupings. And by the way, you know, you pay, you just paid us 75K for one project. What if you paid us 75K and you could do as many of these as you wanted and you don't have to wait four to six weeks to get the deliverables. You can get it in a few clicks. So that was just the most compelling pitch ever. And that's why we were selling it even before we had named it or we were really ready to sell it. Right. Right. That's really interesting. So talk to us about um, how you got the funding to get started, but there's a point where you make a decision about you need to grow. Um, Do you take on more funding? Where was that decision point where you said, no, we're going to go down this direction. And you know, second question on this, uh, had anyone approached you about investing? Well, you say this as if I had a choice. Nobody, (laughs) you know, we all know the reality of funding women entrepreneurs and especially one with no pedigree. I mean, I've done entrepreneurial stuff. Obviously I had my own consulting company, but I didn't fit the Silicon Valley archetype. I didn't go to the right schools. I didn't have the right connections. Um, I did talk to some venture capitalists, um, quite a few, and I actually had raised money before for a different company, Um, but nobody was going to fund this. And they told me flat out, you know, you have a scalability problem. You use human Mm -hmm. beings to do your research. Um, Mm -hmm. Nobody cares about the quality of your content. Stop talking about that. And it just kind of blew my mind because I had customers, some of the biggest tech companies in the world who loved this stuff and wanted more of it. And I still couldn't get funding. And I have a perspective on that that I could talk about forever. But, um, you know, I had to find another way in. And so I just kept plugging along doing these custom projects So, you know, I was kind of faking it till I make it. I would do the custom projects and get paid for those and then just plow that money back into Boardroom Insiders. 
I did take on a partner in 2010 and he had um, made a little bit of money from a company that he worked for before that was sold to Hoover's D&B. So he was kind of from the industry and which was really helpful, but um, we didn't pay ourselves for two years. Mm-hmm. So, it, and it was, it was painful. We both have families. We weren't, you know, we weren't in our thirties. We were older right. and, uh, but we just kept going. And then once you've, once you're down a certain road, it's like, failure is not an option because you've just put too much of your time and effort into it. And, you know, it was, it was growing slowly and we were optimistic and we thought, you know, let's build this up and sell it someday. And that's how we'll get whole. Um, But it was a long process. You know, it was 14 years for me, 12 years for my partner. And, you know, fortunately we had enough revenue coming in where we could fund it. And around it's around 2015, um, is when it really took off. And, and then 2016, um, you started to hear people in the market like Mark Benioff and, and like the CEO of Adobe, both of our customers, by the way, Salesforce and Adobe, mm-hmm. talking on earnings calls about how selling into the C-suite was a game changer for them, helping them close huge deals a lot faster. And and that was always our pitch. We'll help you close bigger deals faster. Right. But we didn't really have anyone in the marketplace out there saying that, validating it. Um, so that was hard. So we had to really do what we call the double sell, like convince people that C-suite selling was worthwhile in the first place, and then convincing them that we were the right solution to help them do that. So, you know, I remember when I first read um, the Salesforce earnings call where they, you know, Keith Block and Mark Benioff spent quite a bit of time talking about selling into the C-suite. And I was almost doing flips off my sofa because I'm like, this is what I need. And I immediately sat down and wrote a blog post about it. And, um, you know, then the next thing Adobe was talking about it and we would track this at Boardroom Insiders. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's a pretty common conversation now in tech is, is how, you know, foundational a lot of these technologies are and, and how the, the C-suite is really involved in helping make the decision. So that, you know, it, it, but it took us a long time to get there. You, you know, Sharon, I think this it's really important for entrepreneurs and especially women entrepreneurs to hear this story because, mm-hmm. you know, we're sold this kind of glorified path to entrepreneurship, which involves, you know, taking VC money and going down this road of a seed and an A and a B and a C and doing it all on this timeline of, you know, 12 to 18 to 24 months between raises. And, you know, we obviously know that it's much harder for women to go down that path. And of course, like if you're a woman and you don't come from this stereotypical, you know, entrepreneurial background, which again, as you mentioned, is like very Ivy League and it's a very specific path. And I think that there is a way to build a company. There's a way to build a really successful company by, you know, bootstrapping and really growing on revenue. It's just not glorified as much. And I want to talk about from your perspective, what were the benefits of taking that path? You know, I'm sure that there were points along the way that you felt frustrated, right? But what what are the good things that came out of doing it on your own and building the company with revenue? 
Yeah, there are so many good things. I mean, obviously, the, the biggest one is control. Uh, you have complete control. You can run your business the way you want to run your business. You can, um, you know, and w- with that control comes just an incredible nimbleness. Um, you can try different things. I mean, one of the things that Lee, my partner, and I uh, did is, you know, if we were curious about something, um, we would try it. We would, you know, do a little uh pilot or, or something. And, you know, there's money involved. We were very careful with how we managed our money, but, you know, we might've been curious about something for years. Like, I wonder if it would work to do X. Well, we don't really have the money to do it, so we're not going to try it yet. But once we get the money, we would try it. And if it would fail, you know, we didn't cry about it. We just said, okay, now we know it doesn't work. We can check that off our list. And that was always the way we approached these little experiments and failure of experiments is like, great. We've been thinking about this forever, wondering if it would work, doesn't work, move on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we had a, a kind of an e-commerce retail model for a while where people could come and buy individual profiles. Um, you know, that was back in the day when I had two little kids and I was building this thing without Lee. I thought, I'm just going to put these profiles up and people are going to come and buy them and I'll just sit in my pajamas and watch the money flow in. Well, that that never happened. It just didn't work. Um, And the main reason for that is because salespeople who are the ones who are really searching for the information, while they might be able to expense a $3,000 dinner, they couldn't expense, you know, a $150 profile. That's the budget for that stuff is in marketing. So, um, you know, that's one reason why it didn't work. But uh, so that's the first thing is the control. The second thing is um, what I was alluding to earlier, which is, you know, because you can't just say, oh, we're going to, you know, build a $500,000 software platform. um, I had to do this stuff manually for years for customers, because here's the thing about marketers, especially in tech. You can give them the best self-service tool you can think of that has all the bells and whistles, but they are always going to want you to do custom stuff. Always, 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 always. So, you know, uh, we gave them the profiles that they could download themselves. They could request new ones and get them delivered within two days, but they still would come back to us and say, hey, you know, we're interested in these 200 CIOs. You have them all in the database, but I don't have time to read through all this. And I don't maybe have the skills to kind of do a summary across all 200. Would you do it for us? So that's the kind of stuff that um, I personally was doing for our customers all the time. And when you do something like try to automate all of that into a software platform, You've already tested it for years. You know, you know what they want. They recognize these these frameworks. They want it. And so all you have to do is create that software to do exactly that, you know, and spit out that exact de- deliverable. Um, had I not had that experience, I might have built the completely wrong thing. You know, we make assumptions um, about what people are going to want. And they may not be the right assumptions. And if you haven't tested them um, very robustly in the market, you might be wasting your money building a lot uh, the wrong thing. So I was I was talking recently to um, a company, and they were asking me when should we build the software. And I said, "You're in a perfect position. You've been providing services forever to this client base. 
you probably have deliverables and templates that you use. Just turn that into software. And it's not, a, it's not, um, it's a, tr it's, it's a spectrum of progress, right? If you think, you know, left of the spectrum, it should be, okay, I have these little templates and deliverables. The first step should be for me to create a tool that makes it easier for us to generate this stuff internally. You know, whatever report you have that you always give to customers, build, start by building something that helps you automate or improve efficiency of your own production of those deliverables. Test that. And then when you want to take it to the next step, start to introduce a client self-service element to that um, and test that with your customers and see how that works. And then, you know, the, you just keep going down that trajectory to full software platform, full self-service so software platform, and you can transition them to that. And it is a transition because especially with customers, you've been providing this kind of white glove service and delivering them slides and presenting them over and over to different people in the company, you have to kind of wean them off of that and show them, lead them down the path. Like, look, there's a better way. You can do this all yourself. And most importantly, you can do it a lot faster and cheaper. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot of information um, <laughs> that no, but it's, it's, it's really, really good um, to, to think in this different way. And, and it's not an all or nothing. Like it's not an all or nothing. It's not an all or nothing. And, you know, um, your original question was about the advantage of just self-funding. I, uh, you know, the, the, the main thing is, and, and this is, I'm still kind of working through my thinking around this, but, um, so I'm not sure if I can articulate it as well as I would like to, but there's different types of entrepreneurship I'm realizing. And, um, there are lots of entrepreneurs out there like me because I've seen them in chief and I've heard about them other places, but our stories aren't told because we're not the big, sexy, raised 50 million, sold for a billion, you know, type of situation. But if you bootstrap and you, you know, I sold my company for 25 million. Well, guess what? I owned over 50% of it because nobody would ever give me any money. Right. I so um, say I did raise a bunch of money and sold it for a lot more, I might end up getting the same amount when I sold as I did now. But think of all the headaches that are involved with bringing all these different stakeholders in and all these funders and having to, you know, have, as my partner would say, a knee in my back um, and being questioned and, you know, you're not growing fast enough. I mean, that would be a nightmare. So I ended up with a nice chunk of money but I did it on my own terms, but it wasn't because I chose that. It was because it was my only way because nobody wanted to fund this thing. And uh, by the way, everyone in the industry thought it wasn't going to work either. The people who were in this kind of business information data industry, um, I didn't get a lot of encouragement from that, you know, my own industry either. Yeah, I think that that's a really, I mean, that's a great way to put it, right? And I mean, there are things that you give up um, and yet you gain from from either decision. And I think that, you know, obviously taking outside funding can help you accelerate um, your goals. But I also think that that's not the right path for every entrepreneur, right? Not everybody needs 
overnight success. Um, and if you're comfortable asking this question or answering this question, I would love to know like how long did it take you to get to your first million in revenue? Because I think that entrepreneurs are also, they feel so much pressure to get to that point, right? And they think if they don't get to it so quickly that they don't have the opportunity for success in the future. Well, it was a ridiculous amount of time. I mean, remember I started in 2008 and mm -hmm. from 2008 to 2010, I was kind of using it as just a tool for my consulting. So it wasn't really a, a product yet. And then Lee joined me in 2010 and we kind of revamped everything um, on the website and made it into a real product. And, but I don't think we were at a million. I mean, I don't have the figures in front of me, but God, maybe 2015. I mean, it took, it took a really long time and it's mainly because of what I was talking about earlier. We were so far ahead of the market. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If, mm -hmm. if we had had, um, you know, if, if we had had more customer uptake cause C-suite selling was like, Oh yeah, we all have to do that. Um, we would have been in really good shape. The main issue was people did not understand what we were talking about. And even in, you know, some of the larger tech companies, it was mainly like, the Cisco's, the Suns, which, you know, was acquired by Oracle. Um, the, uh, um, you know, VMware, CA, DXC, EMC, those were some of our early customers and they got it. But, you know, there's a whole mid-tier and lower tier of, of tech companies that just were like, we, we don't get what you're talking about. And even some of the bigger ones. I mean, I remember talking, I got a meeting with a, a senior marketer at Xerox and I was all excited because I'm like, of course Xerox needs this. And the guy said, I, I don't buy it. He said, we don't need to sell into the C-suite. And he said, and I don't give a shit if someone plays golf, that's not going to help me close <laughs> a multi-million dollar deal. And, you know, let's put aside the fact that, um, doing business on the golf course is most definitely a thing and has been for quite some time. Yeah. But, you know, there were just some people, a lot of people who didn't get it, didn't buy in. But when Mark Benioff said, we are closing nine figure deals because we sell directly into the C-suite. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. That was exactly what I needed. And not only could I go out and say that in the market, I could say, and by the way, uh, Salesforce is our customer and, Adobe saying it too. And by the way, Adobe is our customer. So that was, that was 2016, February, 2016, when that started happening and that kind of conversation was happening on earnings calls. And I guess it's not a coincidence that that's when we really took off. And that's when we started hiring other people because for years it was just me and Lee and some contractors. Right. So not only were you, you know, self-funding through revenue, you were a lean, mean fight machine. Yeah, it was, it was, we did everything. Lee and I did everything. Um, and then we had this amazing woman, Melanie, who worked with Lee at his previous company. And she was like a Swiss army knife. Um, she could do profiles perfectly. Mm -hmm. And she was also a CPA. So she was doing all her accounting. Mm -hmm. She was doing profiles. Um, she had two little kids, uh, you know, that there's a whole aspect to motherhood that goes along with this. And, um, and, 
So she was really an important part of the company, even though she was really working for a contractor, but we hired her full-time in 2017. And she just uh, created an amazing editorial machine for us, um, which was critical to our success. You've talked about your methodology, which wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't like, oh, I planned this. This is the way that it happened. But if you had to give advice to somebody now that you've got this um, hindsight is 2020 vision, right? Um, would you give the advice to founders that they should focus on revenue versus fundraising? To your point that you just said, a friend of mine who is an angel and I was describing my business and where I'm, where I'm headed, she's like, oh, well, you're not a unicorn. And I really wanted to say, that's not a bad thing. If I'm bringing value back to my early investors, depending on who they are, is that, is there something wrong with that? So there's a bunch of questions there. (laughs) No, I mean, it, it depends on so many things. Um, yeah, first of all, uh, my friend who put in that early seed money, he put in like 130,000 and he got like over 2 million back. Now he gives me a little, he, he's actually a public company CEO now, like a billion dollar plus company. But he used to rib me a little bit. He'd say, oh, zero to 5 million in 12 years, you know, kind of laughing because he plays in a completely different world. He is like, he has the pedigree He's a lawyer, you know, his family was entrepreneurs and lawyers. So, you know, that's what I'm talking about. Like, that's what I was not, I didn't have that advantage. Um, But I think when you ask that question that you have to ask, it's not just about what kind of business do you have or what kind of connections you have, or, you know, do you want to bootstrap or are you going to be able to self-fund it with revenue? What kind of life do you have? I have a husband who did everything for our kids. You know, I didn't, I, there were times, you know, I'd go off on trips. I would work 24 hours in a row. I'd pull an all nighter. He took the kids to school. He did all the grocery shopping and he loved it. Um, That's the re that's reality. If you don't have that, I would not recommend doing what I did. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have that support system, And likewise, my partner had three kids and he had a wife who did all of that stuff for him. And so we were free to really be um, at the beck and call of whatever the business needed. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, my partner had this financial cushion when he started with me because of that previous exit. Now it quickly Mm -hmm. went away and then we both were scrambling to kind of support ourselves. I had my consulting business, which I could keep going kind of as long as I wanted to get, keep the money coming in. If you don't have that, you may not, it may not be a realistic option. Right. Um, But, you know, it ended up working out for us really nicely, but we really did want to raise money at a number of junctures because we had things we needed to accomplish. Like, you know, when we got to the point where we wanted to figure out, you know, how to find our sales repeat button, as they say, you know, Mm -hmm what's our sales process that works and let's hire, you know, four people at the same time to 
to ramp it up. We were never able to accomplish that. Like it was like one salesperson at a time and they'd take nine months to get up to speed. You know, most people would tell you, well, you fire them after three months, but that wasn't working for our business. It was a really sophisticated sell. And what we learned is if we, as long as someone was a good fit, understood the product and was doing all the right activity, we held on to them because our experience was after about nine months, they just were rocking it. So, you know, we broke a lot of rules um, and it was difficult to get to that point. Um, But once we got to the point where, you know, revenue was funding our growth, we were we had a, a lot of cash, like the business was throwing off, off a lot of cash. We did things like, you know, profit sharing plans, um, bonuses. Uh, you know, we were able to add benefits consistently for our employees and, you know, pay them. I mean, that's what people really want when they're doing a good job and the company's doing well, give them more money. And so we were able to do that the last few years of the business um, quite easily and I think it's because we were, you know, we, we did know how to run really lean and we hadn't wasted a lot of money mm-hmm. on things that were not going to deliver revenue because we had to be really careful. To me, it's a great story because there are so many entrepreneurs out there who do not see themselves in the traditional entrepreneur that were sold, you know, in the media and to hear the story that you've laid out here today and you're, you know, somewhat... Uh, it wasn't a quite a linear journey, right? But you went a different direction and you ended up being very successful. And like you said, you get to keep the control of the company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there wasn't always times where you could invest in the certain things that you wanted to, but eventually you found a way and you had a great acquisition, you know, $25 million. And, and I'm sure you learned a ton along the way that is, you know, useful for you today. So I think this is really amazing. It's amazing for me to hear um, as an entrepreneur myself and and to know that um, there are people that are doing this and they're doing it very successfully. And, you know, you don't have to to kind of go along that traditional path. And so I really appreciate um, all of the, the knowledge that you've given us today, Sharon. One thing I like to ask all of our guests is um, anything that they're reading watching or listening to right now that they're enjoying that you would maybe recommend to others? Well, I, I did listen to Brotopia um, by Emily Chang. It's about kind of the origin of the, the boys club in Silicon Valley. That was pretty entertaining. The other thing that I'm doing um, is I'm watching a lot of Mexican soap operas because I speak <laughs> Spanish and I'm trying to kind of boost my skills. So um, I just watched but you know they have they have subtitles um so everyone can enjoy them uh it was called daughter from another mother on i think it was i think it was either on netflix um or hulu but really entertaining and i'm watching another one now called uh, la casa de las flores house of the flowers that's on netflix so any uh, spanish speakers out there who enjoy that kind of genre it's, it's a lot of fun I love that. Spanish speakers, so right? If you can read the subtitles and, and still get to enjoy the drama. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, Sharon. We've really enjoyed this conversation. And I think this great. is going to be really helpful to a lot of people. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.